Well, it's kind of interesting that we're moving directly to the gospel because um, Janie asked me to preach a couple of weeks ago, and, and then I realized it was the week that the neo-Confederates were coming to town, and I was probably going to have to speak to that. Um, and then I read this gospel reading, so bear with me as we read it together. So uh, if, if you would like to stand, this is Matthew 18, uh, verses 21 through 36. Um, And it's about forgiveness. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In a different pastorate, in another town, in another state from where I serve now, I had one of those experiences you try to prepare for but hope you never have to face. I had to fire a church employee for sexual misconduct with a minor. In this case, it happened to be the church custodian who was also a congregation member. As the information unfolded and gradually became clearer that that's what was happening, I, along with some help from the personnel committee, attempted to use the formula for a church member who sins from last week's gospel reading to address the situation. When I noticed him spending an unusual amount of time with the youth group, I went and talked with him myself. When it was observed that he was a little handsy with a specific young person, I took members of the personnel committee with me to have another conversation. And then when the grandmother of the victim came forward with information that he had indeed exposed himself to her her granddaughter, he was fired, reported to Child Protective Services, and asked not to come back to the church. It was straight up Matthew 18, but from verses 15 through 20. What I wasn't prepared for was what happened next which was the direct jump made to this week's text. Aren't we supposed to forgive him 70 times 7? 
At that time, that wasn't, uh, for me, that wasn't just a no, that was an oh hell no. I couldn't believe what I was hearing about how he was the best custodian we'd ever had and how much he would be missed on our mission trips and from the family itself that he was a trusted family friend and they hated to lose his friendship. Initially, I was horrified, but then I realized that this was not as unusual as one might think. How many times have I watched as pastors were moved on rather than being directly confronted for their illegal or immoral behavior? How many times have I known churches held hostage for decades by the bullying behaviors of one or two members, which were always forgiven? How many times do we say forgive them for they know not what they do when we know good and well that they know exactly what they're doing and they're absolutely getting away with it? Let's remember that Peter's inquiry in this text doesn't come out of nowhere. It is a follow-up question. Jesus has just explained a straightforward formula for how to confront and rectify the situation if a member of the church sins against you. And Peter wants to know, just how often should I forgive? Because forgiveness is hard, and the kind of honest reconciliation Jesus is proposing makes it even harder. Peter is giving us an incredible gift, the chance to hear how Jesus responds to this spectacular question. We all want to know that answer. If following Jesus is all about love and forgiveness, we could use some practical instruction on how to do it. When the situation presents itself and we have to confront someone directly in their sin, the dual temptations are often there to either go soft or get angry. I'd like us to have a better response than that, one that addresses justice with fairness for the victim and a sense that, indeed, the punishment does fit the crime. Those folks in my past church that jumped directly to forgiveness, or at least to the step of wanting to make it all go away, they made my head spin, and it probably signaled the beginning of my end as the pastor of that congregation. You're playing too loose with the things that matter. I'm all about love and mercy, but that's what I would call sweep it under the rug forgiveness. You see, that church had an image to uphold as a predominantly white, predominantly liberal, Lake Wobegon kind of congregation where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are of average. These soft sentiments were all about protecting an image rather than protecting a child. Now, perhaps that's not a completely fair assessment, and certainly that would include the, wouldn't include the thoughts and opinions of everyone who worshipped there, but it sure felt like I was outnumbered and at least outvoiced in my way of looking at things. Now, I tell this story not to gossip about a past church, but because it is a story of deep disturbance within my tribe, my overeducated, white, progressive, privileged Christian tribe that happens to be Presbyterian, but could include a lot of us who are in the old mainline traditions. My tribe has, probably because it's in the air we breathe, taught me some big fat lies about what forgiveness is. Some of those lies may cross lines of race, education, denomination, theological leanings, or socioeconomic status. 
But having not researched all the details, I can't adequately speak to the incredibly subtle nuances of understanding forgiveness that aren't my own. So I'll let you decide for yourself if you have bought into the same fabrications as I expose for you what have been my own misunderstandings. It took a direct confrontation with my church to begin to feel ill at ease at what I thought were the direct and unquestioned teachings of Jesus. It all goes back to that 70 times 7, Peter's answer from Jesus. In my Christian upbringing, I was taught that I was supposed to forgive a lot. And I think that church people do forgive a lot, maybe too much, when the misdeeds come from within the tribe. And it's completely true that Jesus is answering this question specifically about fellow church members. How often should I forgive someone who comes from my church? His answer is a bunch, more than you think you should. But when it comes to someone outside the fold of that narrative, I have to ask myself, does the lavish forgiveness come as readily? I dare say that it doesn't. For one of the more benign examples of how this works, the Today Show can run a story on a white cohort of marijuana moms who say that smoking pot helps them become better parents. While black young men who smoke marijuana, well, I don't really have to tell you what kind of parents they are presumed to be, now do I? I was encouraged to believe that forgiveness should come easy to people like me. And in the courts and in our congregations, it often does. The benefit of the doubt is a real thing, unless you are already presumed guilty. I was taught that if you believe in Jesus and go to a church like mine, forgiveness just comes with the territory. And with that forgiveness comes easy exoneration from whatever sin or crime has been committed. There aren't many consequences, not even for some rather heinous behaviors that happen among church folks. And to be forgiven, you don't really have to work for it or even want it all that much. When we have come to practice forgiveness in such unequal ways, then it starts to become tacit permission to do anything, and it most certainly changes our understanding of sin and evil. In that self-identified liberal church that I served, the definitions of sin and evil didn't go very deep. Evil was something you boycotted by not eating at Chick-fil-A or shopping at Walmart. And sin was using a styrofoam cup at a church potluck. Sin really wasn't something you might have to deal with in your own heart or in your own soul. In those situations, one's behavior with others mattered less than pointing fingers at someone else who might be less enlightened and therefore in more need of being told how wrong and stupid they were. So no matter what John Calvin said about the total depravity of all humankind, we baby Presbyterians were encouraged to earn our place in heaven by being good and smart and obedient. Therefore, all the goodness that we could do in the world would mean that what little forgiveness we might need was already granted as God's gift freely given on the cross. Perhaps some of, some of this sounds familiar, but maybe not. Perhaps some of the lies you were taught about forgiveness were different, but just as damaging. Forgiveness is so, so powerful. Therefore, forgiveness is such an easy tool to be manipulated. It has kept white people in this country quietly thinking that their upper hand on fairness was actually fair. 
maybe godly even. So it's also why white people like me have been shocked as white supremacy has reared its ugly head now out in the open. We could ignore it, forgive it, when it didn't show up in places where we might show up, like taking a drive down Monument Avenue. We good white church folks have been taught that Jesus wants to forgive extravagantly, wants us to forgive extravagantly, and so we have been. In fact, we frequently looked the other way when people like us have piled injustice upon injustice upon people of color. We didn't call it out. We didn't summon a committee. And we certainly haven't brought charges in front of the church. So now we find ourselves asking what forgiveness should really look like when all the old patterns are deficient, if not completely broken. Are we supposed to forgive the haters who look like us? That seems wrong on a multitude of levels. Are we supposed to ask the African-American community, the indigenous community, the immigrants not of Western European descent for their forgiveness for wrongs that have been swept under the rug in Jesus' name for longer than many of us have been alive. We probably should, but that seems like a paltry offering given our history. How will we begin to recognize the lies taught to us by and through our tribal identities, then really do the hard work of talking to our brothers and sisters about real forgiveness, yours, mine, God's, my white, middle-class, even progressive Christian understanding of forgiveness hasn't been helpful up to this point. But then again, taking another look, the Bible might be. Jesus might be. What Jesus is really saying about forgiveness might not be what I learned about forgiveness growing up. First off, let's take that 70 times 7 saying, what I learned this saying to mean that I was supposed to be a doormat for Jesus, forgiving my friends and family who hurt me a million times over if I had to. Accountability was never the goal. Smoothing over the relationship to make it look nice was the goal. But I can do the math. 70 times 7 isn't a million. And for the Jewish audience Matthew was trying to reach, it didn't mean that anyway. The number 70 is a bit ambiguous as far as what it's supposed to designate, but sevens clearly have a purpose every time they show up. And the number seven that both Peter and Jesus use represents the completeness of creation, the seven-day story familiar from Genesis 1. To forgive someone seven times is to restore wholeness, to reset the creation, to begin truly anew with the person. It also matters for the follow-up story that you couldn't buy someone servitude for more than six years. In the seventh year, Hebrew slaves were set free. And since the story that follows also gives us an example of all debts being eradicated, I have a hunch that we're supposed to be thinking about the Jubilee year here, too. I have my rabbi friend Patrick to thank for those observations from his contextual understanding. Contrary to what I had been taught and what still shows up in Presbyterian Sunday school curriculum, by the way, 70 times 7 is not meant to imply infinite chances for the sinner who can't seem to correct his or her behavior. It is to imply restoration and a reset, the kind which requires transformation moving forward. But even this extravagant forgiveness that Jesus is about to propose has its limits. For justice to be truly served, forgiveness has to be something more than unlimited chances to get it wrong in the community. 
Now I do assume that the illustration that follows is supposed to confirm what is being acknowledged with that 70 times 7 answer. But I must say I find this parable terribly frustrating. It's ultimately about as dissatisfying as our own experiences of how to manage and understand forgiveness. Yes, it does speak to the tremendous power of forgiveness. The king, who typically represents God in Matthew's gospel, has all authority to even forgive the unpayable debt, and does so upon the slave's groveling. One would think that the slave, the servant, would be overjoyed and completely transformed by the experience to extend the same mercy to others. But that's not what happens at all. The slave extorts money from his fellow slave almost as soon as he gets the good news that the debt has been paid. Our unfairness mode ought to be kicking in pretty strongly at this point. Should you have not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? The answer to that should be a resounding, well, yeah, duh. So in anger, the Lord hands the slave over to be tortured until his entire debt is paid. Then Jesus says, God is like that, too. God will punish you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from the heart. That extravagant forgiveness gets lost in a flash now, doesn't it? In several of the stories about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel, God is not above punishing those who don't get with the program. If you can't accept forgiveness and practice it, if you can't recognize when your neighbor is hungry or thirsty and take care of them, if you aren't grateful for your invitation to the wedding banquet, then too bad for you. God has other plans to throw parties for the down and out, and you won't get to participate. The overturning Jesus is doing here gives hope to the hopeless. But I dare say that reading it as is makes those in the seat of power a little bit twitchy. I think maybe, maybe what Jesus could be saying by this parable is that even God's best efforts may be unable to reach some people. God can offer to restore us to wholeness, to press the full reset button, and there still will be those who can't or won't be able to see that as an invitation to offer grace to a neighbor. We won't be able to see that unless we are able to see that. To truly right the wrongs in our communities is going to take grit and it's going to take work. Forgiveness doesn't come on the cheap. It's there from God all the time offered to the most difficult people, even the ones we don't want to let off the hook anytime soon. I don't think that my former custodian is out of the reach of God's love. I really don't. But I would gladly be the one standing in the doorway telling him that he was not about to come in that church. What I do think is that Jesus is perfectly fine with us setting boundaries for behavior and understanding in the beloved community. It is okay to say when something isn't okay. It is okay to say, oh, hell no, to the neo-Confederates who want to rally in our city. And I was grateful Saturday for the fizzle it turned out to be, as they were met solidly by a prepared police force and squadrons of clergy and the power of the governor's office denying their rally permit. It is not our obligation to forgive what is unforgivable or to allow any old message to have voice in this community. I'm not saying that change couldn't be possible. God has an amazing range of possibilities that can happen in God's own time. 
But rather being, than being wishy-washy out of a sense of some sort of guilt, it is our responsibility to hold others accountable and then to act with grace and love as best we can in our own flawed, human, messed up kind of ways. So for my final word, I would like to borrow another fabulous insight from my friend, Rabbi Patrick, who happens to identify his, himself with the confrontational genre of punk rock as much as he does his biblically grounded Judaism. He reminded me that what we, this week that what we do as prophetic-leaning clergy and people of faith is always an act of benevolent futility. Take that in for a second. Jesus talks his head off about love and justice and forgiveness, just as every prophet did before him and every voice of justice who came after him was known to do. And looking around, none of it has worked. What I mean by that is that we are still dealing with the same old shit. The kingdom of heaven ain't here yet. But rather than get distraught by that news, God needs God's people to keep resounding the message loud and clear for those who will have ears to hear it, even if it doesn't work most of the time. Love one another. Forgive your people when they mess up, but not by covering it up by letting the knowledge of their wounding behavior change them, transform them, and allow them to be amazed by the fact that their blunder has been forgiven. Forgive often, but preferably in those ways that offer restoration to the community at large. Speak of God's love as extravagantly as Jesus does in every single act of worship and study that you do. As Patrick reminded me, maybe, maybe that's the most prophetic kind of thing that we do at all, is to gather and worship and give thanks to this God who loves us way too much to let us get away with being the kind of person who gets his whole life back and then extorts his neighbor for a hundred bucks. Benevolent futility. Yep, it's what we do. So keep sending that love out into the world. Seventy times seven. Amen. Amen.